Today is Epiphany, and it is also the last day in our sermon series, Who's in the Manger? And over the last five weeks, we set out to see if there is a credible case to be made for our faith. Now, yes, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. However, that does not mean that there aren't good reasons to believe why what we believe. And in fact, we have seen that there is a strong, rational case to be made for what we believe. Now, in our first week, we heard about eyewitness evidence, which is represented, as I crash into the lights, is represented here by this trumpet, these light boxes. This trumpet here represents the eyewitness evidence and the hope of the good news. Next, we examined the scientific evidence through the lens of archaeology, represented here by the shepherds, as they hear about the God's peace as it comes. On the third week, we heard profile evidence matching the characteristics and behaviors of a loving God to those of Jesus, which is represented over here by the Lamb. And if you look carefully, there's a lion hidden in there as well. On week four, we examined DNA evidence of a sort, which is where we saw more than 300 prophecies of the Messiah as a sort of fingerprint in the scriptures of how Jesus matches all of those, which if you do the math, is a statistical near impossibility, unless it's true. And that is represented here by the warrior angel, which has come to tell of the joy of Jesus' coming. And finally, last week, we examined what we might call genealogical or paternal evidence as we stepped closer to the manger to see through the eyes of Joseph as how history is shaped not on the battlefield, but through the cradle. For it is Jesus who is in the manger. And on Christmas Eve, we introduced here in the center the cradle. For it is Jesus who is in the manger. Now you'll notice today that we added one more thing. It's gorgeous, isn't it? And that is where we are going to begin with our scripture reading this morning, beginning in Matthew 2. Now we left the star out for a reason until today, and you'll find out in just a minute. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. King of the Jews. Herod, or Herod the Great as he is known, Among other things, he was known for building projects. He was responsible for adding a number of fortresses on the eastern border of Israel, and a seaport on the western coast, and even a major addition to the temple right in Jerusalem. And all of this, but Herod was not a Hebrew by birth. He was from a little country called Edom, which is inhabited by the descendants of a guy named Esau, the son of the Hebrew patriarch Isaac. Now you may remember that Esau was tricked out of his birthright, by his brother, all the way back in the book of Genesis. Which is why the Edomites and the Israelites don't really get along too well. Which kind of begs the question, how on earth did Herod end up as king of the Jews? Well, the answer is simple. Herod was a Roman colluder. He was placed on the throne by the Romans to oversee this volatile nation of Israel, known already to the Romans as a place of revolution and revolt against the Roman occupation. Now, Herod tried 
to look Jewish. He got rid of his Edomite wife and he took a Hebrew wife. And then they had a bunch of kids. And he spends all this money on these building projects that were supposed to be of some benefit to Israel. But again, the huge taxes that they required, again, put him out of favor with the nation. Now, despite doing these things and more, meant to make him look like a Jew, he never actually lived the life, as it were. It's said that if there is anyone that could unite the opposing political factions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if there was anyone that they could both hate, it was Herod. And one day, Herod is going about his business as usual when this unexpected group of travelers walk into his court with a request. Now, there's not a lot that we actually know about the Magi. We don't know how many of them actually showed up. It says that there are three gifts, and so the tradition says that there were three magi, but we don't actually know for sure. Camels are never actually once mentioned in the scripture. Sorry, Diane. (laughs) And while we don't know where they're from, uh, most scholars are fairly sure that they were from Babylon, which is actually found in modern-day Iran and Iraq. They were most likely followers of Zoroaster, who was a Persian priest and prophet and teacher which means that they were also astronomers, scientists, priests, and astrologers. Important, influential people in their homeland, and also evidently of some wealth. Now, if you keep reading carefully, you'll also notice that the scriptures don't mention anybody else noticing a star. There's no star in the account of the shepherds. Mary and Joseph never once mention anything about a star. And frankly, the historical accounts don't mention anything of that sort either. Chinese astronomers may have noticed a supernova somewhere around 5 BC, but even that is a little bit shaky. What's more likely is that these astrologers who traced planets and stars to see and understand the future had watched the royal planet of Jupiter, which represented the supreme deity in their religion, and Saturn, which represented the Hebrew people, align within the constellation of Pisces, which represents the region of Palestine. And that phrase, in the east, is actually a loose translation of a technical term describing a rare event called heliacal rising, meaning that those who were born on that day were of a special significance. But instead of just watching the stars and watching the story play itself out, the Magi decided that this is the one they had to see for themselves. So they make preparations and they travel 900 miles to see this new king. That's 900 miles on foot, by the way. That is like walking from Hartford all the way down to Jacksonville, Florida. Which, according to Google, takes approximately 300 hours if you never stop. Which, incidentally, is about the same time it takes to drive down to New Haven on (laughs) I-91. It's a long, hard, costly trip. And it's even harder when you recognize that the journey had to be made with animals and an entourage and equipment and all of that had to be fed and housed. So for as wise as these magi are, they make one mistake. They went to Jerusalem. Now in their defense, we remember they're not actually following a star. They're interpreting an astrological event. And so in that thinking, it makes perfect sense that they would seek a new king in Jerusalem, which is the home of Israel's royalty, and it's the heart of trade for the entire region. 
And so in this moment, we are seeing these two worlds collide with one another. And Herod, and we're told all of Jerusalem with him, starts to worry. Now, we've said that Herod didn't get along with everybody. But Herod was known in his lust for power for his paranoia. And he had at least two of his sons, maybe more, as well as their mother, imprisoned and executed for allegedly conspiring to take the throne. And he had a, a secret police force on the streets to report dissidents who spoke ill of him, who would then be either banished or executed. Caesar Augustus, this is the Caesar, actually said that I'd rather be his pig than his son. Herod is not a nice guy. And so Jerusalem, who are those within Herod's immediate sphere of influence, had every right to be worried by an apparent challenge to the authority of a paranoid tyrant. So at the news, our tyrant calls together these puppet religious officials he had placed in the temple in place of the Levites, and he wants a little chat. And so we continue in our scripture. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he had asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, which is about two years earlier. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. You hear the cunning in that statement? He's getting them to do his dirty work. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose ahead of, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now remember, we said that the star had happened to this conjunction had happened about two years earlier. And we know this because this same exact astrological event, which is a very rare occurrence, happened again two years later, and it hasn't happened since. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. When they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Isn't it odd that Herod, a guy who didn't actually behave like a Jew, is taking this whole thing so seriously? These religious officials, who granted are actually Babylonian plants, not Hebrew, but these guys are paid to know this stuff. But they hadn't yet thought that it was worth mentioning. And the Magi, who are pagans and magicians and astrologers, or even just as foreigners, well, they had gotten the exact location just a little bit wrong at first. They were pretty close, and they had come this huge distance at a great expense to worship the king of a nation that was not their own, bearing gifts of a very special significance to the story that is about to unfold. Now, we all know the three gifts, right? It was a custom to give gifts to royalty. First, there's gold, which is very obviously a precious metal of significant value and used as a universal currency. Next is frankincense, which is a sweet, costly incense used in Jewish temple worship 
And it, by the way, is also an essential oil if you're into that thing. Incense of this sort covered up the smell of temple sacrifice, but it was also representative of the prayers of the priests in the temple. And in the temple, there was always incense burning. But wait, there's myrrh. I'm not going to apologize. I've been looking forward to saying that for a while. Now, I'm trying to imagine Mary and Joseph as these gifts are presented to them. And out of the three, this one would bother me the most. Myrrh is an expensive embalming spice used for anointing prophets, yes, but also for anointing bodies at their death. But can you see the significance of all three of these gifts placed together? The entire story of the incarnation, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is all told within the three gifts of the Magi. Myrrh, a spice used to anoint prophets who spoke to the nation what a right relationship with God was supposed to look like, and also meant to anoint the dead, foreshadows both Jesus' prophetic ministry and his death. The smoke of the frankincense is said to have carried the prayers of the people up to God. And so it foreshadows Jesus' priestly role as an intermediary between the people and God, between a broken humanity and its creator. And finally, gold is a gift that is traditionally given to a king. And so we are told that Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father, prophet, priest, and king. We are only in the second chapter of Matthew. Even in the beginning of his account of the good news of Jesus, Matthew is putting out to his audience two kingdoms side by side as a sort of compare and contrast. These are two different ways from living. So on the one side, we have the kingdom of power. The very first time that the phrase, the king of the Jews, is used, it refers to Herod, who is this paranoid narcissist, and his kingdom is one of tyranny and manipulation or deceit and fear. He would do whatever he could to keep his power, including the execution of family members, collusion with occupying forces, high taxation, secret police, and a few verses from those that we just read, the slaughter of thousands of young children in the very country he was supposed to be ruling as he tried to keep a mere toddler from becoming king. Choosing to pursue power does not lead us towards God. It is a path of darkness and destruction as people become expendable objects to be used. And eventually we push everyone away as a threat to ourselves and the stuff that we have. Now it often starts out seeming like a regular easy path. But the farther along we get, the more we end up living out our lives in fear of what we might lose. And our hands grip everything tighter. The great irony of this, of course, is that not too long after this, Herod dies anyway. Now, on the other hand, we have a kingdom of humility, a kingdom of wisdom. The very first sermon we hear from Jesus is a few chapters after this, and he says things like, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the powerless. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. This is a place where those who are in need will never be without because of the great mercy of the one who created them. It's a kingdom of mercy, of gentleness, of kindness. It is a kingdom of love because it is ruled by the one who is love. It's a kingdom of conscience and of service. And it is a kingdom for everyone. Where the king of 
um, the king puts others before himself, and then his subjects are to follow his example. This kingdom is humble enough to come in the form of a helpless baby, and yet is strong enough to conquer sin and death itself. The second and final time that the phrase king of the Jews is used by Matthew, it's on a little sign that's been nailed above the cross. Choosing this kingdom leads us towards God. It leads us towards life. Because the king that the Magi so wisely sought is a king whose death was cleansing for all and whose resurrection conquered death for all time. See, here's the thing about this sermon series. It doesn't really matter unless we choose to do something with it. If all this has been for us is information, then we've missed the point entirely. If the eyewitness and the scientific evidence is credible, if the profile and the DNA and the genealogy are a match, it really doesn't matter unless we choose to live like those things are true. This is about how we make choices. Matthew shows us Herod's version of King of the Jews. And then he shows us Jesus' version of King of the Jews. And the question that's put before us is which one is better? Which one do we want to be like? Which one drives our decision-making? Which one do we follow? Because the one we follow is the one that we become like. Now, I know it's not always obvious which choice that we make comes from which kingdom. You know, do I buy this brand of coffee or do I buy this brand? Do I take the bus or do I take the car today? What kind of music am I going to buy my kid? How do I treat that annoying coworker today? How should I vote? It is not always obvious. And so Matthew is encouraging us to consider the consequences of every single choice we make. Is this a choice that pursues power? Or is it one that acts out of humility and empowers others? Does each choice make us more or less like Jesus? In the book of James, we read this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, and then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. As they say, wise men, wise women still seek him. The lure of a kingdom of power will always be in front of us. I mean, who doesn't feel like if they had just a little more control over things, then we'd be happy? There are so many versions of the kingdom of power trying to grab the throne of our lives. Our pride says that we and we alone should be on the throne. The economy says that money should be our ruler. 
Our culture says that our desires should be in charge. But it's always a grab for power, and it will always lead to ruin. So whatever your circumstances, whatever life is throwing at you right now, every morning, every afternoon, every evening, you can either choose the path of Herod, paranoid and worried that the world is going to take something from you, or you can choose the path of Jesus, a path of mercy and humility and service. This choice is yours to make with every choice. Matthew is saying this. Jesus is king. Herod is not. Choose wisely. Wisely.